1: because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
3: Hello, and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am your host, Movie Mike. Today, joining me is my wife, Kelsey. How are you? I'm great. We're back with our summer series. Today, we are talking about the top 10 summer blockbusters of the 2000s. We'll get into a movie review of Where the Crawdads Sing, and you are a big reader, and you will be the perspective of the person who actually read the book before watching this movie, right? Yes. And then in the trailer park, I'll talk about why I hope I'm not disappointed by the final installment of Halloween. Thanks everybody for clicking play, clicking download, sharing this podcast with a friend. If you're a part of the movie crew, you already know what this is. Let's talk movies.
2: In a world where everyone and their mother
4: has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of
0: listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. All
3: right, we're in part two of this series, talking about summer blockbusters. We did part one last month with the biggest blockbusters of the 2010s, and today we're doing the 2000s, which I feel are kind of having a resurgence right now. A lot of 2000s pop culture is popular again. And I feel like these are always kind of my comfort movies. Like the 2000s is really where I feel like I identified what I was going to like as a movie fan because I was like a teenager throughout most of the 2000s. So a lot of these movies kind of built my foundation of what I like today. So I think going through this list of seeing the biggest summer movies will kind of be a good snapshot of that. So what we're going to do is I will give you three movies from a year into the early 2000s. And you tell me which one you think made the most at the box office. All right. Got it. Starting first with the year 2000, making the most at the box office. Was it Gladiator, Mission Impossible 2 or The Perfect Storm? Which one do you think made the most money?
4: Mission Impossible 2.
3: Coming in at number three was The Perfect Storm, making $182 million. At number two was Gladiator, making $186 million. And at number one was Mission Impossible 2, making $215 million that year. And since inflation is a bit of a thing that we're all talking about right now, you want to know how much it would have made accounting for inflation? Yes. $360 million. So still pretty good. I never really got into the Mission Impossible movies. because yeah, you don't like Tom Cruise. Yeah, but that kind of went away when we watched Top Gun 2. I was able to separate my pre-existing feelings for him, about him, I guess.
4: I feel like in that one, he's like almost it's the furthest he is from himself. I don't know.
3: He feels kind of like a cartoon character in that movie to me. I just think him as an action star in that type of role, I don't buy into. So he's not my brand of action star and... Watching him on screen running and doing kind of death defying things isn't my isn't what I really go to when I want to watch an action movie. So I never really got into them overall, kind of in the same vein of me never really getting into the James Bond movies. I feel like some people, these are your favorite movies. But for me, not really what I'm into. Moving on now to the year 2001. This was a great year for movies at the box office that summer. Which movie do you think made the most money? Shrek. Rush Hour 2 or The Mummy Returns?
4: Ooh, I'm going to go Rush Hour 2. But Shrek was great. But I don't know if people realized Shrek's greatness right away.
3: That's a good point. It
4: did dominate
3: DVD sales. Did it do and the same had, at the box office? I had the DVD for sure of Shrek. I think everybody did.
4: There was one, maybe it was Shrek 2, where it had like karaoke on the bonus DVD.
3: Yeah, I don't think people realize the impact that Shrek had on America. It's a great... I miss DVDs with like bonus content. Okay. And DVD menus. I'm
4: getting sidetracked. Those are a thing. Okay. I'm going to go with Rush Hour 2.
3: Coming in at number three is The Mummy Returns, making 202 million. Coming in at number two is Rush Hour 2, making 226 million. But not that far away was Shrek with 267 million.
4: Those are pretty close. Pretty close.
3: Adjusted for inflation, Shrek would have made $426 million. I think when. So we see by that number that Shrek did also have an impact at the box office, but I think Shrek really benefited from DVD sales. I remember watching that movie so much in school, (laughs) and I think it was because of the accessibility of DVDs in those early 2000s. The most mind-blowing thing for me was you didn't have to fast forward. You could pick it up at any point. I just remember scene selection being mind-blowing of like, I can just pick it up wherever I want. I can click to this scene, and not have to fast forward or rewind or not have to do the tracking thing. Did you ever experience the tracking thing? Probably. When you put in a VHS and it would be kind of fuzzy, so you'd have to mess with the tracking to get the picture like fine in tune.
4: I made my mom deal with the VHS more. Like I would just put them in. I don't feel like I was old enough to... Like, because DVDs started to come out like when I was putting movies on for myself. I also saw a TikTok earlier about how like the peak excitement of a road trip was like getting your like portable DVD player set up or like the DVD player in a car. And I'm like, those were the days when you had like a DVD player in the car. I wanted one so bad, like built into our car. I think my parents had one. They had one when they had my younger brother. um, And so we would watch a lot of Elmo in the car.
3: I haven't thought about portable DVD players in a very long time.
4: Yeah. Well, this was built in, but yeah, I had a portable DVD player and that thing was Chef's
3: kiss. Those, i had like a really low budget one I think I got from the dollar store, which didn't work that well. The screen resolution was terrible. It had zero battery life, but I remember how groundbreaking that was and how luxurious it felt. To take movies with you anywhere. I remember going on our Yearly vacation, not even a vacation, but going from Texas to Mexico. (laughs) I was going to say, was
4: that really a vacation? It wasn't really a
3: vacation, but I remember a big part of that was taking the portable DVD player and then getting bootleg DVDs in Mexico, which they were usually like screen records, like somebody going in with a video camera and filming the movie. Either that or they were just entirely in Spanish, which was fine for me. I think I watched, I remember watching the movie Gothica with Halle Berry in Spanish. I remember watching. Spider-Man 2 in Spanish this is the first time I ever saw it. Portable DVD players in the early 2000s. I f- totally forgot about that. That was a nostalgic throwback.
4: I think I watched Shrek a lot, which is also how that ties in. I watched Shrek
3: a lot in the car. I think I had the DVD menu memorized for Shrek. Moving on now to the year 2002, which movie you think made the most at the box office? Was it Signs, Star Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones, or Spider-Man? All S's in this category, 2002. Either Star
4: Wars or Spider-Man. I'm going to go with Spidey.
3: Going with Spider-Man. All right, we'll lock that one in. At number three was Signs making $227 million. At number two was Star Wars Episode 2 making $302 million. And at number one was Spider-Man making $403 million adjusted for inflation. That would be $626 million, which is pretty comparable to Marvel movies now. But at this time, they were nothing like what they are now. I really think Spider-Man was the one that laid the groundwork for them to be kind of more accepted in the mainstream to where they weren't just the comic booky movies from the 90s, like the Batman movies. They were set more... They had just a more realistic tone. If it wouldn't have been for the Spider-Man movies, I don't think we would have got Dark Knight. And we definitely wouldn't have any of the iterations of Marvel characters now. I think that was largely due to Spider-Man and also X-Men, which I feel doesn't get enough credit that it deserves. Even though a lot of those movies weren't the best, I think just the characters and those dynamics in those movies were kind of set the groundwork for everybody so year 2002 pretty solid I also really love signs and I think that's the perfect example of how to make a monster or horror movie where you don't see the actual monster that often and just that one scene of the alien walking across the screen for like a very brief moment was one of the scariest things I've ever experienced in the 2000s in a horror movie and I think it was all because you hardly see the aliens in that movie.
4: And for that reason alone, I've never seen science.
3: (laughs) All right, moving on now to the year 2003. Which movie made the most at the box office? Was it Finding Nemo, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, or was it Matrix Reloaded?
4: Pirates of the Caribbean.
3: Coming in at number three was The Matrix Reloaded, making $281 million at the box office. At number two was Pirates of the Caribbean making $305 million. And at number one, $380 million is Finding Nemo. Adjusted for inflation, that would be 554 million. You remember what we learned in the last time we did this? Cartoons. Don't outroll the cartoons. See,
4: Finding Nemo in my heart was the answer, but I feel like I remember- and maybe it was later as the pirates franchise gained traction that it always made so much money. Fun fact, never seen an entire pirates of the Caribbean movie. And I don't say that as like a superiority of like, Mm -hmm. I've never seen this moment in pop culture. I just don't really like Johnny Depp and I don't care for pirates.
3: I'm kind of surprised at how popular those movies were. I get the the scale of them of like, oh, it's a big fun pirate adventure movie. But the actual like storyline in those movies, I don't see how they made so many and how they continued to make as much money as they did.
4: I just never, and I mean, you know me now, I'll go see anything, never had a desire to sit down and watch one. Like, I think if they were even out now and the options were like, stay home and do nothing or go see Pirates of the Caribbean, I would still mm-hmm. choose to stay home and do nothing.
3: I think there was just a odd infatuation with Pirates in the 2000s. I remember having kind of a thing for, the, for Pirates. <laughs> you had a thing for Pirates? I did. I remember, I think my first band was named the Apple Pirates. And I remember just the Pirate imagery- kind of being interesting and fun to me, wearing like skull and crossbones. That kind of idea was something I was into. So maybe that just coincided with the early 2000s. Did
4: you get those skull and crossbones at Hot Topic with your chain wallet?
3: I think I got it at Walmart. All right, we'll move on now to the year 2004. We have some sequels here. Was it Shrek 2, Spider-Man 2, or Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban.
4: This one's hard. This is a
3: very hard one. These are all just monster movies. Which one do you think made the most? Harry Potter. Coming in at number three is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban made $249 million. At number two is Spider-Man 2, making $373 million. And then Shrek 2 at number one, making $441 million. Adjusted for inflation, that would be 640.
4: The Green Ogre.
3: It's at this time where Shrek was at the height of its popularity. Did so well with the first one at the box office, which we saw earlier. Crushed it in DVD sales. I think, if nothing else has dethroned it, is the number one grossing DVD of all time. But those movies were just so impactful. Everybody freaking watched them. I feel
4: like parents could enjoy it because the humor... Was like almost like an adult level humor for some things.
3: That was like the first time I remember an animated movie putting in jokes for adults. Maybe even some a little bit questionable. Yeah. Like, could you put that in a kid's movie? Like the innuendos. and I was going to
4: say the innuendo. It's like, I think constantly about the Welcome to Duloc song where it's like, please stay off of the grass. Shrine oh, yeah. your shoes, wipe <laughs> your
3: face. Or donkey hooking up with the dragon yeah. and having little dragon <laughs> donkey babies.
4: Yeah, that was...
3: It went there. Questionable. So that is the year 2004. Moving on now to 2005, which I thought was a great year in movies.
4: You've said that about every <laughs> single one of these. You just but like every year. besides Every year besides 2020 and maybe 2021 was a great year for movies.
3: In the 2000s, if I had to pick one, will be 2007. We'll get to later. But I distinctly remember a lot of DVDs that came out in 2005. Okay. So... On that list, in summer blockbusters, we have War of the Worlds, Wedding Crashers, or Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Which one do you think made the most?
4: I feel like not Star Wars because I feel like people started to kind of come after
3: these. Started to go downhill by yeah. 2005.
4: Okay, Wedding Crashers or War of the Worlds? That was Tom Cruise, right? Correct. I'm gonna go War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds.
3: Well coming in at number three was Wedding Crashers making 209 million, making 234 million at number two was War of the Worlds. And then at number one really? was Star Wars. Wars Episode Three making $380 million, or today would be $534 million. The thing I remember most about the Star Wars movies, this trilogy, was all the promotion, which I think was the majority of how memorable those movies were. I remember them doing promotions with Taco Bell, and my mom worked at Taco Bell, so she would bring home like the Star Wars cups, and I remember thinking Jar Jar Binks was going to be a great character, and he wasn't, and this whole kind of reintroduction of Star Wars just not being the greatest. I think it's having a moment now, because it's been 20 years since these movies came out, that people go back and kind of... I feel like it's more of a nostalgic thing of like those characters now getting their time and being cool again. But other than that, I don't really love these movies.
4: I still get confused about the sequence because wasn't the first ones that came out episodes four, five, and six? Yes. And then we did one, two, three. So one, two, and three were a prequel to four, five, and six, which came out in the 70s, 80s?
3: The 70s.
4: Like my brain, like George Lucas, brilliant. I don't get it, but brilliant.
3: Yeah, it was an entire vision that if these movies would have been More well-received, I think would have been completely genius, but still, it's an ambitious thing. Yeah. Moving on now to the year 2006, was it Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Cars, or X-Men, The Last Stand? Which one made the most at the box office?
4: Well, now I'm between Cars and Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm going to go Cars and watch it'll be Pirates of the Caribbean this time, but I'll go Cars,
3: final answer. Well, coming in at number three is X-Men, The Last Stand, making million, $234 Making ten million more is cars.
4: Dang it! See, <laughs> even the logic. This is why in school I would always I had to trust my first gut.
3: You got to go with the gut. <sighs> but at number one, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, making four hundred and twenty-three, or now that would be five hundred and eighty-two million dollars.
4: Five hundred and eighty-two million too much.
3: <laughs> if you think of it that way, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised cars didn't make more than that. I feel like they made more off of merchandise sales. Over the years, because...
4: Every kid wanted a Lightning McQueen bed.
3: Yeah, I think they almost made that movie for the intention of selling the merchandise. The merch,
4: and then life is a highway.
3: Moving on now, I'm going to annoy you. My favorite year of the 2000s. This is the only one I'll say is my favorite, favorite.
4: We're already in 2007? That two- was 2006?
3: Yeah. Okay. 2007. Was it Spider-Man 3, Shrek the 3rd, or Transformers, which is the first one? So you have some of the three parts and one introduction of a new franchise, which one made the most?
4: It's not gonna be Shrek three. Shrek three was great, but kind of like hangover three and that like we could have done
3: without it. Trilogy is hard to do. Third one usually sucks.
4: Transformers, Michael Bay, Spider-Man three. I'm gonna go with Spidey.
3: Going with Spider-Man three, locking it in. At number three is Transformers making 319 million. At number two, Is Shrek the third making $336 million and making only 0.5 more million is Spider-Man 3 at number one?
4: Back on my A game.
3: Back on it. Trilogies are hard to do. And even though Spider-Man 3 is often viewed as the worst Spider-Man, I still feel like it's a pretty solid movie except for the whole... Peter Parker turning into a jerk segment in that movie and the whole dance thing. But even re-watching that movie, it's not as bad as I remember. I still think the overall story in that, the overall development of where Peter Parker's character went in the entire trilogy, I still think it's pretty strong. Shrek the third, not very memorable to me. And I think as much as I loved one and two was maybe getting older and th- thought they weren't as funny anymore and kind of checked out at that point. But Transformers... I feel like that movie really changed action movies and really kind of kickstarted Megan Fox's career and made Shia LaBeouf an all-out movie star with that movie. Of those three movies, if you could only keep one, which one would you keep? Oh, that's tough. Spidey, Shrek, or the Transformers?
4: I'm going to go with my loyalty to Spidey.
3: There you go. And that's why I married you. (laughs) Thank you. Let's move on now to 2008. You have some big superhero movies here. The Dark Knight, Iron Man... Or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull.
4: Oh, this is so hard. This might be the hardest year yet.
3: It's a good year. These are all good years. Which one made the most?
4: I've already forgotten the first one.
3: <laughs> the Dark Knight. Dark Knight, okay. Iron Man, Iron Man Indiana, Indiana Jones, and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Dark Knight. Going with the Dark Knight, locking it in. At number three would be Indiana Jones making $317 million. At number two, Iron Man making $318 million. And at number one, The Dark Knight with over half a billion making $535.2 million. And that would be $671 million right now. That's a crazy amount of money for that movie. As I was saying earlier, Spider-Man 1 laid the groundwork for a movie like this to exist. This movie changed everything of making it more realistic, making it even more gritty. And I feel like every other superhero movie tried to emulate that. Every time they make a darker character, whether it be in DC or in Marvel, it always feels like people compare it to The Dark Knight. So I think that is largely due to the success of this movie of why superhero movies are still popular now to the scale that it's on. So... If I ever have to say my favorite movie, I usually say The Dark Knight because I can rewatch that one the most and I can't find one single thing I don't like about it, so that's always my go-to answer for my favorite movie. Are you more of a Dark Knight fan or an Iron Man fan?
4: Dark Knight. I got into Iron Man later and more so like when the Avengers were all together.
3: I felt like he was stronger in the Avengers than he was in his solo movies. Standalone? Iron- nah. Iron Man 1's great. Iron Man 2 is okay Iron Man 3 not very good but you put Tony Stark in with all the Avengers movies he is the star of all those really carried a lot of the other franchises but as far as his solo movies I don't think they're as great as some people remember
4: I also feel like Robert Downey Jr is an actor that like kind of works well when he has like other like good supporting or like other main characters like in the Avengers like yeah. his humor and his like wit works better when there's like other people to bounce it off of.
3: That's a good point too. 2008, we went with Dark Knight, winning at the box office and winning in our hearts. (laughs) And finally, 2009, the year I graduated high school. How did I know you were going to preface 2009 with that? Weird. It's a significant thing because it's the summer before my entire life changed. Before I went off to college and then nothing was ever the same. This was my last summer of innocence where I could just go to the movies without thinking about the real world. So in a sense, these are the movies that ended my young adult life.
4: And it was the summer your mom celebrated because you were all out of the house.
3: Exactly. The movies that made the most at the box office that year were Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Harry Potter, and the Half-Blood Prince. And up, out of those three, which one do you think was the winner? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, you locking that in?
4: It's my loyalty always.
3: Loyalty to Harry Potter. Well, at number three was up making $293 million and a movie I saw twice in theaters. So I gave them double my money, even though didn't make it to number one. At number two, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince making $301 million. Justice for Harry Potter. <laughs> I agree. Cause at number one is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen making $402 million. Good grief. Justice for inflation would be about $485 million. That's insane for a Transformers movie. And I think the most surprising thing for me is I always felt like the Harry Potter movies just kept making more and more money. And I remember the midnight releases and just the buzz of like. Those were my favorite. They would they would be insane. Like people would wait in line to watch these Harry Potter movies. But then Transformers, where are the Transformers fans now?
4: I literally was just saying to you the other day that I can't wait for fall when it's like cold outside and there's football on TV and it's time to rewatch all the Harry Potters,
3: which we will do. All right. But those are the two thousands. Again, if I were to pick one year out of this entire list, I would probably pick 2007 hands down. If you were to pick just one year, what would you go with? I need to see the list.
4: again. I've already <laughs> forgotten. This was, a, we talked about 30 movies. Let me see either 2008 or 2009 let's go 2009 because it had harry potter and up
3: 2009 a 2009 girl eh yeah all right well next up we're going to talk about where the crawdad sing we'll do a spoiler free review after this
2: hey this is jody sweeten from the podcast how rude tanneritos as a nostalgic voice from your past i'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024 you deserve to get away
0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from a life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger, and we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish. All new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Plus.
3: Alright, now we're going to do a spoiler-free review of where the crawdad's sing. my perspective is, I did not read the book. Before watching this movie, how long ago did you read the book?
4: I think it was like early 2020.
3: Miss Catherine Clark is charged with the murder of
0: Chase Andrews. Prosecution has announced it will seek the death penalty.
2: I'm going to get out of here one way or the other.
3: And we'll preface this by saying you read at an alarming speed more than anybody I've ever met or anybody I will ever know.
4: I read three, three books this week. Two whole ones. I guess only two whole ones this week and I finished one last weekend.
3: So you're coming from somebody who reads a lot and you read this book and didn't entirely love it?
4: It was slow. I just kept waiting for it to get better.
3: And you tell me about so many books that you read. Some of them, I can't wait until they turn them into movies. I feel like you would be a great person to like, hey, what was your favorite book that you think could be turned into a movie? You've just read so many. I would really be curious to know what you think about that. Interesting. Do you want me to answer that? Maybe that's a whole other episode. (laughs) Okay. But anyway, we're here to talk about where the crawdads sing. When you read that book, was the movie already in development or did you read it and ever think, this would be a good movie?
4: No, I read it like right when it came out.
3: And I remember it being pretty popular. A lot of people were reading it around that time.
4: I think it might've been, it was like Oprah's book club, Reese Witherspoon's book club pick. And I I also just try to read like all the new ones that have buzz.
3: Which that makes a little bit more sense. She's an executive producer on this movie, Reese Witherspoon. So let's get into what we thought about this movie for me, not knowing anything about it aside from what I saw in the trailer, aside from uh, the couple things that you told me about it, I really knew nothing. And I felt like that kind of enhanced my experience. What usually happens when you do read a book before watching the movie is you're comparing it, you're thinking of what you felt reading that book and thinking of all the things they left out, thinking of how you picture these characters different in your head, it's almost hard to live up to that expectation because our imaginations are greater than anything that can be done with a camera. It's just, that's the nature of it. So what you're gonna get in the movie is the more easily digestible version of that. And I think with this movie, I didn't feel like anything was missing on my end, but I didn't have anything to compare it to. I was going to
4: say, you didn't know if there was anything (laughs) missing.
3: But sometimes I just feel like, oh, they, they didn't do a whole lot here. This needed more explanation. I felt like the entire story was there for me to be able to watch it and judge it. For you, how did you feel about the movie versus the book?
4: I liked the movie way better than I liked the book. And why is that? The book just kind of dragged on. Slow? Yeah, And I feel like the movie was able to portray that better Mm -hmm. because there were parts of the movie that were a little slow, but I also think because the book kind of goes back between So does the movie, but present and then past, I think it's easier to see that visually and read it and comprehend and like do a mental timeline. I, I think the movie is better, but I do have some questions about just the fact that, and this isn't a spoiler, but like her house like is old and in the middle of nowhere and girl looked phenomenal all the time. Like her hair was always curled. Her skin looked great. And I'm like, you don't have power. How are you curling your hair? Which I know it's a movie, but I just want to say that was a little bit of an inconsistency.
3: That she is dubbed as this March girl who lives out by herself, but yet is able to look like she does in the movie.
4: Although Daisy Edgar Jones is just gorgeous. So she couldn't really look ugly if she tried, but I'm just imagining that like she doesn't shower every day in a marsh. Yeah. How did she look that good?
3: That is a thing I think about a lot when watching period pieces or anything where, yeah, a character is being portrayed as somebody who lives out somewhere remotely. Or even just like an adventure movie to where you know these characters haven't taken a shower in a while. Like, how do they look like this? But as you mentioned, I did like the back and forth between the present and the past. Sometimes that can feel a little bit confusing. I feel like this movie did a pretty good job at keeping the main story along in the present going and then also going back to what you needed to see from the past. This is a movie I felt like got some pretty hard criticism early on. And I think that's tough because people always compare anything like this to Twilight. And I'm kind of tired of that take of people saying that the romance story is the same or Something was missing from the movie. They just compare it to Twilight to kind of belittle the movie. Terrible and thing to compare something to. Yeah. Very different genres. It's very different.
4: Also, Twilight didn't even do the best job at putting together. And I read all the Twilight books. Like, the books were better than the movies. So I don't think that's a fair comparison.
3: But this movie had a 35% rating on Rotten Tomatoes when it yeah, came out Yeah, what old
4: man week. is going to like this movie?
3: And the criticism to me just made no sense, especially when it's sitting next to a 96% audience score.
4: This is why Rotten Tomatoes doesn't want you because you'll (laughs) bring down or I mean, I'll change their narrative. Yeah, you'll change their narrative.
3: And I don't think we should review bomb movies for the sake of just watching something like this and thinking this is something I shouldn't like. I think that's what I hate about real movie critics. I don't really consider myself a movie critic. Like I'm passionate about movies. I'm a film movie enthusiast but I'm just a fan at the core of it and I feel like some critics have this just like thing that they have to like certain movies like an A24 movie or something from a certain director and if they give that kind of movie a bad review they are losing some credibility and if they were to watch something like Where the Crawdads Sing and give it a great review it would have the opposite effect of like oh you like that movie you must not be that good of a critic just like something if you enjoy it And I think it's because I had, I guess, so low expectations going into this movie. It was more a movie that you wanted to watch that I was just going to go into it and enjoy it for what it was. And I found myself liking it more. There were less things that I could pick out from it that I didn't like than I did.
4: I will say, and if people have listened to this podcast long enough, you know, I did not get up once to go pee during this movie. That's how into it I was.
3: That is, yeah, you have to be pretty into it. That's a
4: barometer. It was like two and a half hours and I did not get up. Oddly, a lot of people got up during this movie and it was really annoying
3: to me. Yeah, I did notice that a lot. At like
4: one point with like 10 minutes left, this lady came back with like a full slushie and a popcorn and I was like, there's 10 minutes left of the movie.
3: How are you leaving now? Also during this movie, was this the one where the lights came up or is that Oh minute? yeah. That was weird.
4: They turned the lights on like 10 minutes too early. So we watched the end of the movie with the lights up. That was a little annoying. One of the most dramatic parts of the
3: entire movie, which we won't spoil. Happened while the lights were up. But you can't turn up the lights.
4: Yeah, that was annoying.
3: That was really annoying. That reminded me of when I was watching Endgame and the most emotional part in that movie, this girl next to me was on her phone. I'm over here trying to have a moment and she's on her phone texting somebody.
4: Yeah, you can't be doing that, people. Go home if you
3: want to text. But going back to the ratings and the criticism on this movie, I still think that now the movie has found its audience. Like, the audience score shows that. I think even most of the people that I know read the book and were a fan of the book still enjoyed this movie. You enjoy the movie more. So I think it's finding the right people that it needs to find. And I think even with me, it's finding people that weren't expecting to like a book like this turned into a movie.
4: This is also the first movie, would you? Not like a rom, it's not a romantic drama, but like a drama that's not like an action or a sci-fi or dystopian. Like this is the first one in a while of something of that nature.
3: And it's kind of a nice break, and not your average summer blockbuster movie. It's not really your typical come out in July type movie,
4: right? And I think, I mean, think about like Big Little Lies.
3: There was Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu, like mm. those
4: kinds of like book to TV or film adaptation. It's been a while since we've had one of those.
3: With the acting in this, did you ever feel it was a little soap opera ish or like teen drama ish at all or a little CW ish? No, because I've watched both soap operas and CW
4: <laughs> teen dramas. Not really. I didn't think so either. Is that a criticism that it's yeah
3: kidding? that it's that it has this kind of soap opera, overly okay. dramatic type? Is that
4: another old man saying that because Probably. if they ever watched <laughs> The Young and the Restless or The Days of Our Lives, because that was nothing like that.
3: I didn't get that at all. Like I thought the emotion in it was warranted. That they did a really good job at showing her character as a kid and kind of building that foundation of where she came from. And the struggle she had, it made it pretty emotional for me.
4: That's the stupidest criticism. I'm just thinking about, I'm calling it soap opera-ish. No, soap opera-ish is like the OC or One Tree Hill where every episode something like terrible happens and they have these like tangled love lives. No. Okay, that's dumb criticism. I'm shooting that one down.
3: So now we will give our rating for Where the Crawdads Sing. Me coming from a place of this was a movie I was interested in watching. It did make my most anticipated of the summer, but also it not being something that's completely in the genre I love. I found myself enjoying it a lot more than I thought I did. And I would give it four out of five Marsh Girls.
4: I was going to give it four out of five Bags of Grits. Yeah, I would rate that higher than I would like rate the book if I was rating it on like,
3: Goodreads. All right, after this, I'm going to talk about a scary movie. So you're not going to be here, right?
4: No, I'm leaving your office.
3: Okay, thanks for joining me.
0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parish, from my new series, Parish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from life, you know that. His business is failing, his house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money. And he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. (laughs) Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+.
3: Now it's time for the part of the podcast where I break down a movie trailer of a movie coming to you very soon in theaters or streaming online. If you're new to the podcast and say there's a movie trailer you think I should talk about, you can always send them to me uh, via email, moviemiked at gmail.com or tweet them to me. Let me know if there's a new movie coming out you think I should cover, but here we go. Talking about Halloween Ends.
0: It's time to head down to Movie Mike's Trailer Park.
3: This is supposed to be the final chapter in this yet another reboot of Halloween, which started out strong. Really disappointed me with the last movie, so I'm hoping they can go out on a high note here. But before I get into all the things I think about Halloween Ends, here's just a little bit of the trailer. Which is actually a very highly visual trailer, but here's just a quick little sneak peek at it. Come on, let's go. Oh! So that's just a taste of Halloween ends. It's supposed to be the conclusion of this new trilogy. And the main point of it is Michael Myers facing off with Laurie Strode in a final battle. It looks like one of them is going to die. And this Halloween reiteration started out so great in 2018. I thought that movie worked really well to recreate that original feeling that the first one gave us. Give us back some of that nostalgia And making Michael Myers cool again. Which he really hasn't been in a very long time. Even though they've been cranking out these movies. I mean, since they first came out back in the 70s. And I felt like the Rob Zombie Halloween 1 and 2 left a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And maybe by the time Halloween 2018 rolled around, people weren't really willing to give it a chance. But I think if you were a fan of the original Michael Myers movies, which the first one is one of my top five, if not my favorite horror movie of all time because it's so classic. And I just love the character of Michael Myers. I think that 2018 movie gave me a lot of hope that it would bring back those original vibes throughout the entire trilogy here that we have. But as we saw last year with Halloween Kills, that movie was just so lame. And I find myself remembering when that trailer came out and now comparing it to this trailer because the Halloween Kills trailer from last year went really hardcore leaning into all the graphic nature of it there were so many kills within the trailer that some people were saying that this movie's going to be too violent they're giving everything away and I was like no if they're giving you that much horror and gore in the trailer that just means that the movie is going to be even better and I found that I got more than I wanted and why I think that didn't work in that movie it was too much Michael Myers on screen it just seems like when he's there all the time it takes away that suspense and the brutal killing just got stale and repetitive and the plot line was pretty stupid it felt like that entire movie was being made as it went and there was no clear thought and it also felt like they were doing that movie to set up Halloween ends they were holding so much back and the 2021 movie, to get to here. So that has me hopeful, at least now, even after seeing this trailer for Halloween Ends, that this will be the movie that goes out with a bang. And it needs to be. It needs to be that final showdown between Laurie Strode and Michael Myers that's gonna make us wanna see this end finally and hopefully not get rebooted again in another decade or so. The bad thing that the previous movie did for me is it made me not root for any of the good guys in the Halloween franchise now because I want Michael Myers to win at the end of this and I think he will. I mean we've seen her die in these movies before She died at the very beginning of Halloween Resurrection, which they probably regretted a little bit. So the overarching story of the Halloween movies doesn't really make sense. And it's weird getting glimpses and little clips of the original movie in this trailer and making it feel like this is going to be where it ends from those very first movies because of all the things that have happened in between. They're basically saying, hey, remember the first two movies, forget about everything else in the middle and just remember what we are doing now. So as an overarching timeline, doesn't really work. That vision is shot. But I think you have to finish it off with her dying, you thinking Michael Myers is dead, and then he twitches a little bit and he's still alive. (laughs) Like, I think that's where we're going to get here. And it might be a little bit lame. But I'm just hoping, as a diehard Halloween fan, and as much as people were not satisfied with the last one, that they really give us something here, that little glimmer that we saw in 2018 that attention to detail of making it feel suspenseful and making it a little bit self-aware of knowing that some of these elements are a little bit cheesy at this point. And bringing back some real drama and some real stakes into this one, I think that can go out on a high note. Can't really go out on much of a lower note than the last one. It can really only go up from there. So I think for that reason, I am hopeful But Halloween Ends comes out this Halloween season on October 14th. And yeah, we'll probably have to deal with another iteration of Halloween in probably 2030, whether we like it or not.
0: And that was this week's edition of Movie
2: Minds Trailer Park.
3: And that's gonna do it for another episode here of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for making me a part of your week. And this is the portion of the episode where I give my listener shout out. That's just my thank you to one of you who tweets at me, sends me a DM, or sends me an email, moviemiked at gmail.com. And today I'm going over to my Twitter and we are shouting out Beanie, who is at UDFlyer88 on Twitter, who tweeted me a screenshot listening to last week's episode and wrote, so excited to hear Mike D'stro feature the Clerks 3 trailer in the trailer park. Love me some at that Kevin Smith. Can't wait for this one to come out. Hashtag, I wasn't even supposed to be here today. Appreciate that, Beanie. That says a couple of things to me is one, you listen to the episode all the way through, which is always something I wonder about sometimes i feel like people get tired of me in the first 10 minutes and the more i see people tweeting things like the secret emoji whenever i do interviews and i give those at the end of the episode or you make it to the trailer park that means a lot to me beanie so anybody who does that an extra thank you to you and also that you tagged kevin smith the director of clerks three whenever you tag somebody that i talk about i think that helps me out because maybe they see it and they wonder, well, what are they talking about? What are they listening to? Maybe somewhere down the line it comes up and I get to interview a person like that. So if you ever have a thought like that and you want to tweet me, and you include a director in that, I'll for sure hit that heart button on that tweet and maybe they'll see it too. And maybe down the line, you can hear them here on the podcast. So hope you have a great rest of your week. Next week, I'll be talking about the new Jordan Peele movie, Nope, as we continue our talk here of horror movies. And until next time, go out and watch good movies and I'll talk to you later. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: Dexcom.com/compatibility. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss in the land of saints and sinners.